Hey heathens. Hey heathens. We're back. <laughs> it took long enough. <laughs> but we are back on Halloween of all days. Can you freaking believe it? Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Yay. I cannot wait to actually just get stuck into season two. Um, we've got so many cool things planned. So many exciting little tidbits to talk about. And yeah, it's going to be an epic, epic season it's taken us a while to get to this point but we're here we're here we're back to entertain all you <laughs> jack-o-lanterns and pumpkins on halloween and going forward we've got another 13 episodes haven't we in store for this season lucky 13 lucky for some and then a live one at the end as always yes yay so buckle in all you guys and ghouls and let's <laughs> jump in now i've been excited about this one jess is taking the helm of our first halloween well yeah our first halloween pod is us actually our first podcast of season two and also our first halloween podcast and jess is at the helm of this it's a one. big one it's a big one what are you doing for halloween no way? pressure what are you doing tonight because halloween is halloween we have pre-recorded this episode oh don't ruin it um don't ruin it pretend it's okay. live no it's not live Pretend it's live. It's It's, it's dead. It's very dead. It's not alive at all. It's Halloween. It's the night of the dead. It's very, it's undead. It's undead. Our podcast is undead, guys. Our podcast is very undead. Um, So for Halloween, um, the Saturday is date night. And then the Sunday we are going to a haunted forest, which should be quite fun. (gasps) Oh, haunted forest. Oh, you say Haunted Forest is fun. I don't know whether it will be so fun when you're in it. Blair Witch Project, anybody. Which Haunted Forest no, are you not, going to? It's it's an event. So oh, it's not okay. like an actual actual Haunted Forest. Oh, I was like, um, I was envisioning me screaming down the phone at you like, Jess, at 1am when you're stuck in a Haunted would, Forest in a corner of a shack. Yeah, I, I would be video calling you and, you know, the snot bubble coming out of my nose and that weird framing where you just see my eyes and I need to find a red beanie. You do need a red beanie. And then we'll be looking for the found footage of you because Jess it all would be <laughs> disappearing into the ether. Okay, thank God. Okay, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an event, not an actual forest. Thank it's an God. event, yeah. Yeah. It's um, like they have trick-or-treating for the kids and and stuff. So it should be should be quite cool. Oh, nice. Oh, very nice. I like that. That'll be fun. Yeah, it should be fun. And yourself? What are you what are you doing for Halloween? Uh, what are your tonight? Uh nice. actually tonight Halloween is in the Sunday. Not too much, but the Saturday is my friend's birthday and she's having a Halloween themed birthday in her house. So it's going to be a big house party, a big Halloween birthday house party, which should be fun. And I'm going to go as Lydia that sounds Dietz. amazing. Oh, yeah. I've got, well, I'm going as Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice. So the big red wedding dress. I may have not thought this I through. love it. <laughs> yeah, if you say that. I ordered the skirt, guys. I ordered the skirt, um, which is supposed to be like this sort of like billowing Victorian, you know, it, it's obviously it's like not great material because I got it from friggin' Amazon Prime, but it's a billowing red skirt with many layers, and it's it's a crinoline basically. It's a, it's like a Victorian crinoline. I'm like, will I fit through the door? I put it on and was like, this is much bigger than I thought. I'm genuinely worried I won't make it through a front door. I may have to be outside at this party now. It's it's a big one, guys. I'll take a photo and put it up on on Instagram next sun next Sunday. You'll see it. Um, it's it's a 
so we're not next Sunday. Oh my God, I'm getting all the dates mixed up, Jess. Tonight you'll see it. It'll already be up. When you're listening to this, you'll have already seen it. You'll have seen how ridiculous it is. And you will know by this point whether or not I made it inside to the party. It's it's big. You know what? It's it's fine if it's big because COVID is still a thing. So it's just got <laughs> built-in social distancing. It does. Jess, she's always one step ahead. You're always one step ahead, Jess. Um, this is actually this is my excuse for just being outside in the front garden, guys. Can't fit through the door. Six feet apart. Six feet apart. It is about six foot yep. apart with this bloody skirt. Honestly, I didn't. Think there you go. Or maybe I did. Maybe my subconscious <laughs> is, is like Jess, a genius. Um, but yeah, that's my Halloween. Lydia Dietz in a massive skirt, possibly stuck outside. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's amazing. You, ha- you definitely have to take photos, all the photos. I will. I've got the wig on the way. The wig is on the way. The wig actually should already be here. See, I feel like I'm talking in the past, in the future. I don't know where I am at the moment. I'm in back to the future land. But uh, the wig, I am actually styling to be like Lydia. So this should be interesting. The little fringe. Oh, that sounds very interesting. Oh, yeah. It could be a disaster, but we'll <laughs> it could end up. I could end up looking like Alice Cooper. I could look like Lydia Dietz. We'll work out who it is. Um, That's Halloween, guys. What okay, are you so- doing? Tell us on Instagram. And Twitter. And everywhere. You do still have it. Yes. And everywhere. <laughs> TikTok. Tag us on um, TikTok. Yes. Do we, yes, we are. We are on TikTok. I forgot we are on TikTok. <laughs> I think you might be able to tell from, it's been a from while. this comment from Jess who, who runs the social media accounts. We are on TikTok, Jess. We are. Uh, we haven't been for a little while, but we're coming back. Oh, yeah, we're coming back. So before we jump into tonight's episode, um, we just quickly wanted to touch on some really, really awful movie news that um, has happened at the, uh, over the past couple of days. So I'm sure everyone's seen the, the horrendous tragic news um of that shooting that happened on the set of rust that's awful it's just and so i was talking to one of my friends um today who's a he's a film director and a very very good one and he it it makes no sense to him he said i don't understand how it could possibly happen because he's done so many shooting shootouts in films and he said you never aim the gun at anybody there's no possible way even a gun with blanks should be aimed at anyone on a set. It's never, no matter where the shoot is, there's never anybody near it. That's how you yeah. stage it. That's how you choreograph it. He, he just, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I've worked on films. You know, I make films myself and I haven't done sh- a sort of a shoot myself from a director point of view, but I've been on set when there have been sort of shoots going on. And they've been handled so, so well. You haven't even noticed anything or, or been scared or, or anything. As an actor, I I've experienced one and it was absolutely fine. It makes no sense how that happened. It it really doesn't. And like as the time of recording, um, details are still coming out and the investigation is still ongoing. But um, from what's been said, um, from what I've seen at least, that um, there have been indications that safety on set wasn't exactly the best already and apparently there were complaints from crew members already so i'm sure in the in the coming days by the time this is released we'll have more clarity and you would yeah. think after after 1994 the the last horrendous event um well actually no it wasn't the last was it there have been other events since then probably the most publicized mm. because it was brandon lee in the crow it was the crow of course brandon lee being shot dead on the set of the crow but no there have been other instances of crew members being being killed on sets. I know one 
I was sadly hit by a train, do you remember that, a few years ago? It was some terrible debacle where a crew member was hit no. by a train. Yeah, actually, I will just very quickly look it up now while we're recording. There was a terrible incident with that. Um, and other, there have been some uh, deaths. Of, uh, a young boy was um, working on Harry Potter, was paralysed during a stunt scene. A young man, pa- permanently paralysed now, um, after working on Harry Potter. There have been some terrible occurrences on set, but this one made no sense other than that it was a low budget film and and there was everyone was negligent really that should have been paying attention but it was yeah pretty terrifying no i i've just i have read of, of terrible things happening on set but i suppose because this involves alec baldwin and obviously he's a very very well known actor very well known for other things offset as well as on set not particularly the best behaved but you can't say this was his fault because as an actor, no. from an actor's perspective, holding the gun, but he was a producer. That's the only thing. Yeah, but from from like the actor's point of view, um, I've seen a lot of like prop people um, come out and mm. say that they like the actors should not be messing with the gun at all. No, they get handed a gun and they get and and that's what they you know that they need to do their bit, and then the gun gets taken away and they get given back the the prop gun. Um, and there's not. Like, they should not mess with the guns or any of the settings or anything like that. So it's really, it's such a tragic, I don't know, I don't want to say accident because this was completely preventable as well. It was completely preventable. Um, just and also you, negligence. It was negligence, but you don't now need on set for any rounds, blank rounds even, to be used because you have CGI, you have special effects. A friend of mine who works on films was telling me a few days ago how it's possible, how he's actually done it in a film himself, to use um, obviously computer technology to create the, the, the light, you know, to create the flash. So yeah, it's flash and sound. It's what they do with um, it's what they do with John Wick. Exactly, you don't need it. You don't need the the actual gunfire, but I suppose in a set there was a story, wasn't there? That the the crew members walked out, the illegitimate crew members, and then they returned to set the next day to pick up their stuff to find they'd been replaced by locals who weren't necessarily part of the unions that they needed to be, so they weren't thoroughly checked. That's the story coming out, whether that's true or not. Um, but they they weren't licensed, they weren't part of a union. It's problematic. If you're making a low-budget film, you still... doesn't matter how low-budget the film is, you still need to work with people who are part of the union from insurance purposes anyway. And safety protocols are there for a reason. Exactly. It's terrible. Well, look at anyway. Twilight Zone. We've already touched on these terrible things happening in other episodes, like the Twilight Zone, the movie episode. Negligence on set can cause unspeakable tragedy that can just echo through the film industry. But you would think... The yeah. last awful gun death on set was the crow. And that's what, 27 years ago. And here we are again. No words. No. A poor, just lots of love to um, Helena's family. Helena Hutchins' family has a husband and a son and a family because it's just horrendous. It really is. And on that sad note, um, I suppose we should jump into the episode. I don't know. Yeah, we should. <laughs> like, not sure how we continue from that. Well, so awkward laughter. Awkward laughter. No, but you know, it, <laughs> film. We talk about film, and uh, this is just unfortunately, it's a it's a terrible, terrible thing linked to a film. But films yeah. 
must go on. Before, well, obviously, if you're listening to this, you would have seen what it is that we're doing. Um, but for whatever reason, you haven't read the name of the episode. I'm going to keep it until, like, keep the suspense going for a little bit mm-hmm. because, I don't know, because I can. So I'm going to start off with a quote. And um, this is by the director of the movie we're covering tonight. So horror is a very effective tool when it comes to telling stories that impact us on a social level. The very function of it is to make you feel uncomfortable. And I think that if that discomfort is attached to explorations of race or gender, then you have to reconcile your feelings about race and gender. And that quotes by Nia DaCosta. So yes, that's right. This week we are talking about Candyman. Good choice, girl. Very good choice. I'm excited. I'm excited. Have you watched the new movie? I have indeed. Uh, The sequel. I have indeed. Um, Any chance I have to hear Tony Todd's voice, (laughs) I will watch it. (laughs) That voice is just, that echoes through the ages. That is a beautiful voice right there. It really is. Brilliant actor. So Candyman is a 2021 supernatural slasher film directed, as mentioned, by the amazing Nia DaCosta, written by the fucking immensely talented Jordan Peele. Um, he also produced it. Also written by Wynne Rosenfield and DaCosta. Um, it's a direct sequel to the 1992 film of the same name. It's also the fourth film in the Candyman film franchise. The original movie was based on the short story called The Forbidden by Clive Barker. And it's just so the film stars Yahia Abdul Mateen II, Tiona Paris, Nathan Stewart, Jarrett, um, Coleman Domingo, um, and Tony Todd, as well as Vanessa Williams and Virginia Madison, who re- also reprised their roles. It was released this year, August 27th, um, by Universal Pictures. Um, it was delayed three times thanks to COVID. Oh, what a fucking surprise. Um, So about the movie, let's just give a quick brief synopsis. The movie is set around about 30 years after the events of the first film, and it follows visual artist Anthony McCoy, who lives in Chicago with his girlfriend, um, Brianna Cartwright. Brianna is an art gallery director. Um, Her brother Troy shares an urban legend of Helen Lyle. Does the name Helen Lyle ring a bell? It does. Um, It does. (laughs) I'm excited. Um, A graduate student who supposedly went on a killing spree in the early 1990s, which culminated in a bonfire outside of the Cabrini Green housing project where she attempted to sacrifice a baby. The baby was saved and Helen died in the fire. Anthony is looking to like regain that creative spark and he's looking for some inspiration. He's looking for a muse. Um, So he starts roaming around Cabrini Green for looking for inspiration. And he meets Billy Burke, who is the owner of Laundromat. And Billy Burke tells him the story of the Candyman. So when Burke was a child in 1977, he had an encounter with Sherman Fields, who was a hook-handed man that the police um, falsely believed to be responsible for putting a razor blade in a piece of candy that ended up in the hands of a white girl. Burke... um, Inadvertently alerted the police, and Sherman was was um, consequently beaten to death. He was posthumously exonerated, but th- 
the legend implies that if someone says Candyman five times in a mirror, his spirit will appear and kill the summoner. So Anthony is now feeling all inspired. He creates this mirrored art exhibit based on the Candyman's legend, and um, it showcased at Brianna's art gallery. He's not exactly thrilled when he doesn't get a positive reaction from critics, though. That night, one of Brianna's co-workers and his girlfriend are slaughtered by the Candyman after saying his name five times in front of a piece of Anthony's exhibit. (gasps) Anthony starts painting a series of portraits of people he doesn't know, um, and the legend spreads, and more and more people are killed after repeating the Candyman's name including art critic Vanille Stevens, who disregarded Anthony's piece, and a group of teenage girls in a bathroom, because, of course, teenagers. That's hilarious, though. Sorry, that scene, I was kind of like, yeah, bitches. (laughs) 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 Sorry, I was like, yep, you're all really annoying. Bye-bye. Oh, God, I'm terrible. Sorry. I do not advocate for murdering teenagers ever, just in Candyman. And in horror movies, because it's all pretend. Exactly, it's not real. So it's okay. It's not real. So after Anthony's seen the spirit of um, Sherman, he actually goes and confronts Burke, and he learns the, the actual origin of the Candyman um, story, and that's um, with Daniel um, Robertal, who was an artist who was lynched after having an interracial affair. The legend had been renewed over generations, and it kind of becomes like this whole hive, which includes... Sherman, William Bell, Samuel Evans, and among and other black men who have been victims of racism and injustice. And these are all the people who Anthony has been painting. Um, so it's all sort of been flowing through him as inspiration. Yeah. Dark inspiration. Yeah. Ooh, okay, love it. Yeah. It's that intergenerational pain and trauma. Well, yeah. It's handed down it's not it's not a good thing it's not good inspiration to be running through you can tell you it's horrible anthony starts to change um physically and this all comes from a bee sting that he received on his hand um just before he met burke and this like develops into this big scab and it starts spreading across his whole body he goes to a hospital and he finds out that his mother actually lied to him um, when he was born when he confronts her he actually finds out that he was the baby that was rescued <gasps> from Helen. No! Cool. Yes. The Candyman had actually been responsible for the spree that she was blamed for. And Helen was the one who actually saved him from Robert Hall, who had abducted him and planned to sacrifice him in the fire. His mother never told him because he wants, she wanted Anthony to have a normal life. Oh, yeah, that's um, not something you really land um, on a child. By the way, you were put no. basically in a funeral pyre being sacrificed by a hook-handed ghost from, from the 1800s. There you go. Nice start for you, babe. Worried about Anthony, Brianna um, realizes that Burke told him about the candy man. She goes to Cabrini Green to find him. Um, at the laundromat, she's attacked and subdued by Burke, who takes her to an abandoned church where Anthony, his body continuing to deteriorate, is waiting. Anthony um, has kind of gone into this like fugue state as Burke reveals that he has not only witnessed um, Sherman's death, he also saw Sherman's spirit returning as the candy man and witnessed him kill his older sister and her friend after being summoned. Burke plans to have 
the police gun Anthony down to create a new legend with the Candyman as an instrument of vengeance rather than a symbol of black pain and suffering. In order to complete Anthony's transformation into the Candyman, Burke saws off his right hand and replaces it with a hook. Oh my god, this is just horrendous. This is horrendous. Brianna manages to escape. Um, She gets chased through Cabrini Green. She violently stabs Burke, who's chasing her. Anthony appears and collapses into her arms. The police show up and they shoot Anthony dead. Um, Brianna is arrested. She's handcuffed. The police try and bully her to basically agreeing with them that um, Anthony provoked police and it was a provoked shooting. But instead, she uses a police's rear view mirror to summon the Candyman. He appears now in Anthony's guise and kills the police. Anthony takes on the appearance of a rubber towel and instructs Brianna to tell everyone. Oh, that's not, that's not a good way to end your days, is it? Becoming Candyman. <laughs> Like, literally, oh, gonna saw your hand off, here's a hook, you're now a candy man. Great! It's a dark, it's a very, very bleak ending. So, some facts about the movie. So, I couldn't really find anything, um, well, I couldn't find too much about, like, anything that happened on set. Thank goodness Um, for the actors and the crew. (laughs) It's already horrific material to be dealing with in a really, (laughs) really, um, very, you know, obviously Candyman's not real, but, but... the, the torture and the torment and the racism and the the um, persecution elements are very far too true to life. So yeah, yeah it's, it's it would have been horror. I'm glad. I'm really happy for the cast and crew that they had a good time on set. But I do I did find one or two tidbits though, and I did find like one or two interesting things from the original 1992 movie. Oh, um, which will which we'll get into. Nice. So the original movie was, as mentioned, the Candyman film was um, released in 1992 was based on the 1985 short story, The Forbidden. Um, have you read it? I haven't. I haven't either. Have you read it? No, I, I've actually kept meaning to. Because I read, because um, I love Hellraiser. Hellraiser's great. And I do love Clive Barker, like Nightbreed. So I have read some things around that. I've read some of his short stories. Um, but I haven't read that one. I keep meaning to. We should both try and read it before the end of the year so we can at least say that we've read it let's do that i don't know why the end of the year it's always good to have a deadline we you and i definitely need deadlines jess and i've worked together for a long enough time just to know that we both need deadlines um i'm up for that awesome so by the end of the year we will read this and get back to all of you heathens and let you know what we thought so the original story was rooted in themes surrounding the british class system Um, in Barker's native Liverpool. And English director and writer Bernard Rose opted to Americanize the story by setting it in a public housing development in in the inner city Chicago to focus on themes of race and social class in the United States. Yeah, and it's brilliantly done. Yeah, it really is. Cabrini Green, the setting of both films, is actually real. Chicago, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the films take place and were partially shot in Cabrini Green, which is a housing project on the near north side of Chicago. The housing project was notorious for its poor construction, managerial neglect, and high rates of violence. The high-rises were controversially and famously demolished in 2011, um, where a nearby target now stands. 
but the Cabrini row houses featured in the Costa sequel still remain. In both films, the main characters reside in luxurious apartments in the gentrified areas surrounding the former housing projects. In the original movie, all those bees were real. No. Really? So there's a yes. lot of them. Yes. Oh, and they poor Tony Todd. Stunned. So the 2021 film uses CGI bees well, because it's cheaper. Uh, also, and <laughs> well done, Nia. You know, you know where it's at. That's terrible. Using real bees. Um, in 19, right? In 1992, optical and special effects were a luxury that low-budget films just didn't have. So the filmmakers um, used actual bees. Um, these bees were bred specifically for use in the original Candyman movie. They were um, newborn bees. They look exactly like adult bees, but their stingers don't um, pack nearly as much punch. There were more than 200,000 bees on set, and the crew had to wear a whole bunch of protective gear. During the influential and revered scene where bees fly out of the Candyman's mouth, um, Rose said that all Tony had was a dental dam to prevent them from going down his throat. Oh my lord, don't lie. They used a special breed of non-venomous bees and that was because um, Madsen was highly allergic to bees. Um, it took 45 minutes to remove the bees from the actors with a special bee vacuum. And Tony Todd has actually gone on record saying that he was stung 23 times while filming. <gasps> uh, Poor guy! No, but wait! He did negotiate a bonus of $1,000 every single time he was stung. Oh, clever man. So, I mean, like, clever he did man. get 23000 you know, for being stung. So, there is that. There is that. But still, it's friggin' bees. And I don't care how much they try to <laughs> modify them so that they're not particularly stinging. They are stinging bastards. They are. He had them in his mouth. Yeah. He had them in his mouth. Wow. Like, actual bees in his mouth. Now that is dedica dedication to his craft. He's amazing. God, I, I already love, as you may have guessed already, I love Tony Todd. I think he's awesome. He's gone up massively in my estimations just from that. That's incredible. Right? I just thought, I obviously was a kid when I first saw Candyman and I know it was 1992 when it was made, but I honestly thought it was all a form of CGI. I, I, I didn't think it was real. I thought it was computerized or something. I didn't think it was real. Because, I mean, there, there were a lot of bees. Yeah. It looked real. I thought it just looked astonishingly real. And it was real. But just because it was real. Oh, my goodness me. That's... <laughs> and Virginia Madison was allergic to bees. Highly allergic to bees. Wow. Okay, then. They were both in the firing line for this. Good. It's just what we've been saying about actors and crew members being put in dangerous situations. That's... Bees are dangerous. I know that they say that they're non-venomous, but still, it must be if you have an allergy. Yeah, but not just that. I mean, okay, well, if you have an allergy, definitely it's it's not exactly fun. But even if they're non-venomous, um, it stings gonna hurt. Yeah, and twenty-three stings he got, Tony Todd. That's a lot of stings. Fuck. Ouch. I screamed for like twenty-four well, hours when I got a bee sting once. I was like constantly moaning and griping about it. Like I've got one piece. If I had 23, I'd just be dead. Probably would be actually dead from 23. 20, oh 23 bee stings. Well, at least he could afford EpiPens with the 23,000. 
you think that they would provide that though really <laughs> sort of like yeah good another point incentive. actually Just part of health and safety yep here's a whole don't worry carton. there's epipens yep we've got you a cargo ship full of epipens part of your health insurance yep oh my goodness me i didn't know that i genuinely had no idea about that I just thought, and I didn't either. So, um, like I said, there were there are some facts about the previous movie, just because finding things in it, the the sequel that this year's one was um, difficult. So I kind of combined the some of the stuff. Doesn't that just show you um, that because that it's Nia all Candyman? <laughs> it's all Candyman, but doesn't it show you that Nia DaCosta obviously did a good job? There was nothing to report. She did such a good job. She kept everybody safe and did such a sterling job. It's like, oh yeah, great. Normal film shoot. Oh, I love, I love her. I watched so many interviews and stuff with Nia DaCosta and I have such a crush on her. She's She's awesome. brilliant. She is awesome. Um, but I'm, I'm really impressed actually because normally there's always something, particularly when you're looking at films back from the 60s, 70s, 80s, there's usually a litany of of mistakes and, and horrors but yeah, go near oh, wait, we're, we're about to get we're about to get into some stuff okay here we go Ooh, okay <laughs> so okay so now this is um the 1992 candy man so cabrini green um ha- has uh, become quite infamous for being very fucking dangerous a lot of the 1992 movie was actually shot in um, at Cabrini Green. So you can imagine it's infamous for how dangerous it is. Um, so <laughs> shooting there couldn't exactly have been safe. But uh, director Bernard Rose insisted that they shoot there because he wanted the authenticity. So the cast and crew actually had to make deals with local gang leaders who controlled Cabrini Green agreeing to put multiple residents into the farm as extras in order to ensure the safe working conditions. Tony Todd once recalled being told to watch out for snipers during production, and a production vehicle was actually hit by a sniper bullet near the end of the shoot, although thankfully no one was hurt. So So I just thought that that was quite interesting. Nia DaCosta, one. Bernard Rose, zero for this. That's... Mm -hmm. He put... I oh my goodness be bees and and bullets bees, bees and, and bullets, bullets. <laughs> oh my lord that's I had no idea I had no idea and that's really 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 um reckless and negligent and Bernard Rose I'm not a fan of you know near DaCosta all the way near DaCosta gets champagne um Bernard Rose gets bees in his mouth no that's dreadful yeah completely so poor old tony and todd. poor old tony todd is having bees 23 bean stings bees in his mouth and fucking snipers oh my god poor tony you and you don't do that to tony todd i'm sorry i'm very protective of tony todd i've loved tony todd <laughs> since I was a kid. he's so awesome i'm protective of him you do not give him bee stings or snipers no <laughs> no. Oh my word, Bernard, what were you doing? And um, next fact I have for you is um, Candyman, both films, blend multiple urban legends together. They kind of mix real urban legends um, and create like really compelling new narratives. So the Candyman is actually like a big Franken monster amalgamation of Bloody Mary, um, The Hook. And there's also classic horror elements from Dracula. Then we've got references to the razor blade and the candy, 
there's references to um different movies as well different different urban legends which is which is quite cool um but yeah the thing that that stuck out the most to me was the the bloody mary thing because i mean you know standing in front of mirror saying candy man that's pretty much bloody mary did you ever do that um, as a kid bloody no mary. i was too scared i got I got as far as four. No, you have to say her name 13 times, wasn't it? I think I got as far as 12. Yeah, it's, it's and then Candyman's obviously just five. I think we did yeah. it. And I, I, we definitely did Candyman. We definitely did that quite a lot. God knows how I haven't been hooked yet. Um, <laughs> a lot of times. Uh, yeah, and Bloody Mary too. See, you were a much cleverer kid, more risk, more r- concerned with risk. I was obviously risk averse. No, I wasn't risk averse. You were risk averse. I was an idiot. Um, Last fact I have for you is that um, one of the murders from the original movie was based on an actual crime. Don't even. Don't even. This is where we're going now, isn't it? Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I'm strapped in. Strapped in. Mm-hmm. Shit's about to get real. We're about to look into the tragic death of Ruthie May McCoy. Oh, no. Who was murdered in 1987. Oh, wow. This wasn't long before the first movie then. No, not long at all. I mean, we were we, we were alive then. Yeah. We're little. Baby, but, but yeah. We were alive. Oh, my yeah. God. Damn you, Candyman. Ruthie May McCoy, or Miss May as she was affectionately known, um, grew up on Chicago South Side. Now, sadly, she had a bit of a history of mental illness, and she'd actually started showing symptoms when she was in her 20s. Now, I'd, I'd read that those close to her knew that she was mentally ill, but they couldn't actually identify what her condition was. She would apparently talk to herself, and she'd curse at strangers on the streets, which, yeah, kind of made me, like, made me think of um, a guy from... Varsity. It was a local, and who <laughs> um, he was a uh, outpatient at the local mental facility, and he was would often walk down the street and just randomly swear. Um, he had millions of names: no friends, not Nige, uh, Crazy Kevin, um, Acid Bob, Acid Bob. Very oh, first wow. time, Acid Bob. Very first time I saw him, he had the psychedelic purple hat on, a cane. And he was wearing like a white jumpsuit and he was just walking down the street and he was just going, shut the fuck up. I don't want to fucking talk to you. And I told you, just shut the fuck up. Leave me the fuck alone. I mean, I understand him, quite frankly. It's how I feel when I walk down the street most of the time anyway. I just don't verbalize it, but I understand his thinking. Right. It's just um, a little bit disconcerting when you're an 18 year old. (laughs) It's a bit nerve wracking. Oh, bless him. Do you, I mean, have you anyone seen him around since? Obviously, you, you won't have done that. No idea. No, no idea what happened to No Friends, Nige. No Friends. But his actual name was Kevin, I think. We did have a chap like that in, in when I went to school. I went to school called Watford Grammar School for Girls in Watford. And there was a chap, I, he wasn't sort of, he didn't suffer from Tourette's and he wasn't, I would say, too, um, suffering t- from a too serious mental illness. But he was very excitable and he was called noddy everyone used to call him noddy <laughs> and he was convinced that my classics teacher called miss bateson hi miss bateson she probably won't be listening to this but she's lovely was his aunt and it was he was absolutely convinced she was his aunt she wasn't his aunt or related to him at all but he would often say very random things as he walked past you not sexual 
Not anything horrible, just very odd things. I can't think of an example now, but it would be very disconcerting. Like, what? What was that? Um, yeah, I think we've all met somebody like that. But he was definitely convinced my classics teacher was his auntie and they were no relation. That's weird. Yep. Should data be diagnosed as having residual type schizophrenia, a diagnosis that arises when someone has experienced schizophrenic um, episodes in the past, but is not currently exhibiting symptoms at the moment. Oh, um, I've never sorry, heard of that disorder. I've, I've obviously heard of schizophrenia and, and schizophrenic episodes, but not residual. I haven't heard of that. You neither have I. It's, it's quite interesting. Mm. She, I mean, she would have gone like a bulk of her adult life having a, an untreated mental illness. Um, so you can imagine how this impacted basically um, everything, right? And apparently it made it difficult for her to keep a steady job. And she was never really in a job for longer than a couple of months. And she was, she was also institutionalized for several times throughout her life um, as a result of a mental illness. Oh, that's really sad. Um, that's really sad. Yeah. So because of all of this, she actually found herself living in public housing in 1983. The name of that public housing was ABLA or A-B-L-A. Not sure if, if you say ABLA or the A-B-L-A or however the hell you pronounce it. But um, it's in Chicago, and it's actually located um, very close to Cabrini Green. Now, this public, public housing development was comprised of four separate housing projects um, on the near west side of Chicago. And it was an acronym, the ABLA was an acronym of the, the four different names of the housing developments that were lumped together. It spanned from Cabrini Street on the north end to 15th Street on the south end, um, and from Blue Island Avenue on the east end to Ashland Avenue on the west end. Most of it's actually been demolished um, for the development of Roosevelt Square, um, which is a new mixed-income community. The new renovated Brooks Homes being the only part of the ABLA that's left. For most of its existence, it held more than 17,000 residents, but there were only officially 8,500 leaseholders, which was quite interesting. Yeah. So there was more people than were supposed to be living there. It was actually the second largest population in the Chicago Housing Authority. Wow. So, so many people crammed in together. Yeah. Oh, people really don't look after people. This is the problem. Not at all. Ruthie, with her history of mental health issues um, and being schizophrenic, she was um, often taken to a clinic um, where she could get treated. And she was transported in a van with other, other patients. On the 22nd of April, 1985, Ruthie actually told a woman that she, um, that she was in the van with that she believed someone had, had actually threatened her life. Uh, the woman urged Ruthie to tell someone at the clinic, but poor Ruthie didn't want to get anyone involved because she wasn't actually sure if what she saw was real or if it was an hallucination, or if it was a hallucination. Oh, wow. Oh, that's horrible for her. It's tragic. Could you imagine the fear that she must have been living in it's, ter it's ter it must have been absolutely terrifying you don't know because maybe she had some awareness obviously of, of her, her mental health condition mm. that you don't know what whether what you're seeing is real or not that must be really scary actually absolutely fucking terrifying 
And the really, really tragic thing is that she was trying to leave the projects and actually get her life together in, in the months leading up to her murder. Um, she'd actually received approval for a supplemental security income, which doubled her monthly monetary assistance. Um, and it also paid retroactively. So this meant that her first check was nearly $2,000, which, I mean, was quite a tidy sum for someone in the 80s, right? It would have been, yeah, I imagine in 85. Uh, I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, obviously not from experience, I wouldn't know, but it, I imagine that would have been a, a decent amount for a monthly payment. Especially someone who's pretty much on the poverty line. Yeah. Ruthie was going to use her check to leave the projects, but she also used some of the money to buy some new clothes and to get a few things for a new house a few household items so she wasn't exactly extravagant you know as blowing money all over the all over the place her new purchases would have drawn some attention so it's theorized that whoever killed her noticed that she'd started oh. um, buying stuff and that maybe she had money stashed in her apartment see that's scary that people are noticing and of taking note of what you're doing and attributing that to possibly you've got oh, money, that's hard. Well, if you just think back to how many people are crowded in these these areas, I mean, so many people in dire situation as well, yeah. that something like that would, would stick out. On the evening of the 22nd of April, 1987, the Chicago Police Department received a phone call from Ruthie. It was frantic. She confused the dispatcher. Recordings actually, like if you listen to the recordings, Ruthie is, is telling the poor dispatcher that people threw the cabinet down and were coming through the bathroom. <gasps> oh, like so, But the dispatcher didn't understand. They, the dispatcher didn't, didn't understand that it was a break-in. She thought it was like a, a, a disturbance and it was recorded as a disturbance, not as a break-in. So it was a, so the the call was actually misreported. Oh so it was a massive amount of lack of urgency on the report on the part of officers responding because of that. So before that first car had actually arrived, the police department had received another call, well more calls actually, more like multiple, um, reporting gunshots and shouting. Eventually, when officers got to Ruthie's home. They knocked on the door, but no one answered. So a couple officers went to the um, ABLA's management office to get the spare key to her apartment, but the key didn't fit the, the door's lock, which is weird. That is anyway. really weird, to be honest. But it's also just it's, horrible um, to think that all this confusion was going on and people weren't doing their job properly. The police left. They, um, oh, you think that thanks. you know? Yeah, thanks. Leave. Yeah, they left. Calling. Great. <sighs> so the next day, um, one of Ruthie's neighbors, Deborah Lassley, called police. Now she lived on the same floor as Ruthie, and she said that Ruthie always stopped by her apartment every morning and every afternoon on her way in and out of the building, and she hadn't that day, and she was really concerned, considering all the commotion. From the night before, Deborah was was hell of a worried. She put two and two together, and she thought something was very, very, very wrong. So, six police officers and five security guards 
from the complex all go to Ruthie's apartment and they knock and there's still no answer. This time, the police actually decide that they should maybe try and do something more and they break the door down. Well, they decide to break the door down, but the security guards discourage them. Oh, for um, God's sake. And said that if nothing was wrong, the tenant could sue. So then they all left again. Oh, this is just two times they've been outside now. Two mm-hmm. times they've been outside while she's been inside. Theoretically. The next day, Deborah Lasley still hadn't seen Ruthie, still concerned and fucking worried, goes to the business office of the complex. And they finally got a carpenter to come through and take the door off. Oh, when they got two days later, two days later, when they got into the apartment, they found Ruthie. She was lying on her side on the the bedroom floor. She had one hand on her chest. One, one of her shoes was off and there were papers and coins all over her. Um, She was lying in a pool of her blood. Um, when they turned her over slightly, the police reported that the smell of rotting flesh had begun to oh. seep through the apartment because she had, I mean, she'd been there for a few days. Poor Ruthie. Poor, and they've been outside all the time she'd been in there dead. Jesus. She'd been shot four times. Once in the shoulder, once in the left thigh, once in the abdomen, um, and the bullet passed through um, her liver. <gasps> And then once through her right upper arm and into her chest. Um, And it's believed that that's the shot that actually killed her. And it's been said that because of the extent of her injuries, even if police did actually manage to go in, she probably wouldn't have survived being transported to the hospital. Uh, That's just horrendous though, isn't it? To have been so brutally shot butchered like that right but also i mean it, i know they say that but it's just it is infuriating still to hear that there were people outside that could have got in and they, they didn't exactly and it's just this this whole story is so fucking maddening i mean ruthie to have lived the life that she did to have been let down on so many times about the system to not have received the help that she needed early on in life and then to have not received the help she needed the most when she needed it the most it's just it's it's fucking disgraceful it's appalling. what it is it's absolutely appalling and the problem is people just don't obviously neither of us are american but we hear enough about the american judicial system about policing about um how mental health is, is dealt with and you know provisions for health care and it's lacking it's lacking here in the uk too we have a lot of issues and definitely a lot of distrust in the police, but I know that from American friends of mine, it's it's an ongoing issue. Yeah, news as well. So at the time, reports claimed that there was no indication of an intruder forcing their way in, even though you know Ruthie had actually called and said that people were in her house, um, well in her apartment. So the theory was that Ruthie knew the um, knew her murderers and um, let them in. Oh my god! And eventually, a, 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 tribu- a Tribune article can't speak posted the real story. Though um, Ruthie had been murdered by someone who entered through the medicine cabinet oh. in her bathroom. That is flipping terrifying and Candyman. That is very. Very Candyman, very Candyman. Oh, that poor so woman, now, the terror of that. 
According to the janitor, the building was constructed in a very unusual way to allow for easy maintenance. Each apartment was connected to an adjacent, adjacent apartment through a hole behind the medicine cabinet. Not only this, but once you were in the wall, it was easy to move up and down to the other apartments in the building as well. According to the janitor, it's the way to go from one apartment to the next, even if you're not killing anybody. Oh, great. <laughs> even if you're not killing anybody. Great. Yeah, just... just you just want to go... Just go and have a wander. You just want to go visit your mates. Yeah. You know, just... Not going to use the go elevator. Go through the wall. It's easier. Yeah, not going to use no, an why elevator. Not, not going to use the stairs. I'm just going to climb the wall and go through your bathroom cabinet. How about that? Hey. Hey, Jess. Just in your bathroom. Just knocking through <laughs> the cabinet now. I might just knock everything on the floor and break it all. Hi. Oh, my God. That's just insane. That's insane. You come through my bathroom cabinets, I'm probably going to, like, I don't know... Kill me? I wouldn't blame you. Scream. I wouldn't blame Ye- you. Hit me. Meet you the fuck out the window. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's... Swing first, ask questions later. The idea of someone climbing through something on your wall. It's very like the ring, isn't it, with the TV? It is horrifying. It is something mm. out of a horror film. The idea that somebody can climb through a safe place that you think is safe. Your bathroom cabinet, you're going to think that's a safe thing. <laughs> a safe place. It's on the wall. But that. That's it. And it's that, that like, complete violation of your safety that's so unnerving. It is. That somebody can enter your safe space, enter your apartment, your home, through a cavity that you don't even know is there. Because you would, that's the thing. People obviously weren't told. There was no, no way of blocking it up because if you didn't know about it, just pop the cabinet mm. and people are in. That's horrible. That's truly horrible. Because there was so much violence in this complex, Ruthie's story wasn't exactly a headline. According to the Chicago Reader, people in this building had thrown babies out of windows, they'd shoved bodies down the elevator chutes, they'd busted through walls to rob and murder before. So according to the editors, the people that lived in that building, there was nothing unusual about what happened to Ruthie. People had been breaking through medicine cabinets in this building for years and it was such a such a thing that so many like people were eventually putting furniture in front of their bathroom doors at night. That is insane. Oh my word. I can't. I can't even. I can't even. I can't even. So investigators looked into the apartment next door. It was being rented, but it was not occupied by its renter at the time. It wasn't exactly uncommon because drug dealers would sublet apartments to sell drugs out of. Um, even though you know, it wasn't permitted by the lease agreement, they'd do it anyway because you know, drug dealers, I don't know. The police talked to a man named Tim Brown, and he was apparently hanging out there for most of the day with a, uh, a man called Corey Flournoy. Not Corey Feldman. You know, I can't pronounce shit. <laughs> I thought you were about no, to say Corey, Corey Feldman. Feldman. I'd be like, what? <laughs> They were later joined by Ronald Coleman, Edward Turner, and John Hundress. Brown says they wit- he witnessed Coleman showing Turner and Hundress how to enter the adjacent apartment through a hole behind the mirror. Um, at some point, Flannoy and Coleman left, and Tim Brown was alone with Turner and Hundress in the apartment. Brown witnessed Turner and Hundress break through the mirror, heard several gunshots, and saw them come back through the wall with a TV and a rocking chair. And a rocking um, chair? They stole a rocking chair. That's just that. I, I give a up trying bizarre to bizarre thing to step. You know, God, Ruthie's death, number one horrendous thing. 
Stealing her rocking chair? I don't get that. Who the fuck knows? <laughs> Who the fuck knows? Hundras and Turner were arrested for the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy. Hundras was 22 and Turner was 19 at the time. Apparently, there were discrepancies with Brown's story. So at first, he, he tried to say that he wasn't there that day. Then he tried to say that the break-in didn't happen until 11.30. Then he tried to say that the door had been unlocked so they could go back later. And it was a whole m- bunch of, of facts that police actually just couldn't you know, correlate, and he contradicted himself. At trial, Brown changed his story again, saying that it was Hondras and Coleman that broke in, not Turner. However... Turner's girlfriend testified that he came to her apartment afterwards and bragged that he had shot someone. So with all of this testament, with all of this contradiction and everything else, and entire disorganization of the whole trial, um, Hundrus and Turner were found not guilty. And What? Unfortunately, they were found not guilty. No one has mm-hmm, no one has been charged in connection with Ruthie's murder. Oh wow. Um, and if it wasn't for the Candyman, her story probably would have been completely forgotten. No justice for Ruthie. It's just, it's monstrous, yeah. isn't it, though, that that can happen. That a woman can be murdered and no justice. And I know it happens all over the world, but it doesn't matter. Each story that you hear, it's it's maddening. It is, it is. So that is the really tragic, awful story. Ruthie May McCoy... Um, oh Ruthie May, I'm very sorry. That's just awful. Um, but that's obviously been immortalized is the wrong word. You know what I mean, though. Her story's been 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 taken and adapted for the screen to keep it alive. That's so so. Oh God, just the idea that this poor woman she isn't believed. Probably a lot to do with her mental health disorders. People do do disregard complaints or or concerns from people who have legitimate mental health disorders because bigots and bastards i'm just looking at my notes and um i'm like typed out a whole bunch of stuff that nia da costa was saying listening to one of her interviews and um one of the things she said was that we process trauma through stories so Mm. i think that's i think that that is just quite quite telling when it comes to something like Ruthie's murder um and that it comes through in this way it's it's being processed through through a story um so it's still a horrible story but it's important that we tell these stories um and it's important that we keep telling these stories because it's how we deal with this intergenerational trauma and it's how we we come to terms with that legacy of racism it's it's so true it's so so true it's it's when you hear stories passed down as well so if you've got friends who their parents their grandparents have experienced some form of of persecution of of racism it is it is this it's it stays in the dna doesn't it it never leaves Mm. and it's something that is it's passed down as a warning, as a testament, but it's unfortunately in, in a lot of cases, not of the victims' cases, but the perpetrators' cases, the, the lessons are never learned. These patterns are repeated. 
I think that's quite a, a like a complicated thing to to go into. Um, I mean, there's yeah, there's so much. Yeah, <laughs> we we can't we can't possibly un, un, unpack like everything. Um, We're a horror yeah, film there podcast are... after all. We unpack horror films, not not social injustice. But um, but there are some really fantastic learn from the best pieces. Bring it that, on. Um, Bring unpack it, on. it quite well for you. Well, for us, for you. There we go. <laughs> I learned from the best segment we have got two things to watch so the first one is making of Candyman 2021 the best of behind the scenes and on-set interviews um, and then there's a really really great docky as well called Candyman the impact of black horror it's fantastic read Candyman the urban legends behind the movie and why we found them irresistible read the true stories of murder and lynchings that inspired the horror classic Candyman. And of course, The Forbidden by Clive Barker. Can't forget that one. And I will also link that um, story that went viral, what, it was last year? <gasps> About the girl the... and her apartment. Yes, the TikTok, yeah. Oh. I found I found that story. I'll link it all in the show notes as well. I remember that story. I think I may have sent that to you and to Ben. Oh my goodness. It was horrifying. It really was. It really oh my god! Like, oh my god, that poor girl. The first thing that came to mind was, "Oh my god, this is Candyman." Yeah, it's the Candyman apartment, and then she goes in. Actually, I won't say any more, but just just watch it, guys. She was brave to go oh, in. Like she's I would tough not cookie. have Good gone in. And then this week's obscure film club. We have the Tagalong from 2015. It's a Taiwanese blockbuster um, based on a legend of a little girl in red who follows those visiting the forest and snatches their souls away. Um, In this case, she haunts a young professional man and his family who have recently crossed crossed paths with her in the woods, and she slowly starts pulling them over into the spirit realm. That sounds amazing. It really does. I actually can't wait to watch that one. Same. (laughs) Um, we have got the Canadian cult classic Death Dream from 1974. It's also called The Dead of Night. It was taken, f- it's a take on the W.W. Jacob short story, The Monkey's Paw. It's about a soldier who dies in battle, but is whirled back to life by the pleas of his mother. Um, the soldier isn't exactly the same when he comes back, and he's even aware that he is now living dead. Um, he requires blood to keep from decaying, and his ghoulish behavior, as as his ghoulish behavior persists, his family starts crumbling around him. That sounds great too. <laughs> I mean, these these very depressing, awful topics sound amazing to me. <laughs> we have got Ringu from 1998, the original Japanese one that inspired the ring oh not that shitty naomi watts one definitely the original always the original no always the original so this is uh the one that started it it's a group of people that are terrorized by a tape demon sadaku yabumara in in um hideo nagatu's ringo um it's a pale white ghost with long stringy hair and one horrible eye peeking out from behind it 
who crawls out from inside the TV. And it really, really was like that scene is just so burnt into my memory. It's horrific. Of the girl, of Sadaku climbing, climbing out the TV. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it is. It's chilling. That scene is chilling. And the acting is so good. It's so good it's in fantastic. that It's fantastic. Oh. So don't watch, don't watch The Ring. Watch this version. Way better. Yeah, definitely. I remember the first time I watched that, <laughs> we, we were watching it, me and one of my friends in uh, my house, young teenagers, and exactly the same time the phone rang on the television, on the screen, my phone rang. We shrieked our heads off. No. Yeah, ex- I it was the, same t- the exact same time. And the phone was in the room, like right near us, screaming in the living room. Yeah, it was pretty terrifying. And then last on the list, we have The Boogeyman from 1980. Um, So The Boogeyman is one of the most persistent urban legends of all time and seems to have a variant in nearly all cultures across the world. This 1980 super horror natural form appropriates The Boogeyman concept and modifies it to tell the tale of two sisters who are terrorized by the ghost of their mother's murdered boyfriend, who has recently escaped being imprisoned, imprisoned in a mirror in their house. That sounds awesome. Right? Yeah. Sounds bloody amazing. So yes, so that was tonight's episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for doing <laughs> that. Jess, that was amazing. I loved it, but I'm also quite sad and horrified <laughs> by stuff. Yeah. By poor Ruthie May, her death, by the fact that there are cabinets that you can actually smash through, or there were in Cabrigo can't speak cabrini green cabinets you could smash through to break into people's apartments that was real it was amazing well done jess and the bees oh i'm not going to get over the bees thing i'm not going to be able to look at bees at quite the same way no. bees and snipers. For a while. bees and bullets as you said bees and snipe bees and bullets bees and bullets well done jess loved that great film great podcast from you loved it hey well thank you so much for listening it was um, I won't say it was fun. It was interesting to research. Uh, it was heavy, very heavy. Those those documentaries that um, go into black horror are just fucking amazing to watch. Oh. Um, so we will catch you heathens next week for episode two. <gasps> yes. Season two. Which we don't know what it is yet because we're actually recording three other episodes. <laughs> it could be any one of those next. Yeah. So you'll get a surprise. Surprise. Surprising times. We will be as surprised as you are. <laughs> we'll be. We don't even know yet. We're so surprised. Um, trick or treat. Trick or treat. Trick or treat. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, we'll see what happens. But thank you very much and uh, good night, heathens. Good night, heathens. See you next time. 